Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care, and John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to The Late Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Tom Rogers. And we have a very exciting show for you this evening, as always, as always. Um, But we've got uh, Daisy Christodoulou and Khalil Rouse joining us in just a moment uh, to talk all things the future of education uh, on the planet Earth. I suppose the United Kingdom a little bit more, but basically everybody. Global. Global future of education we're going to be discussing tonight. Um... Really excited uh, to, to sort of do this double header. Last yesterday, I had Tom Sherrington on, and uh, we were talking about similar issues and topics. Although we went off on a massive tangent, we'll probably do that again tonight. I would have thought the football is more or less done. It's three nil to Brazil. There's nothing to play for there, so perfect timing uh, to come and listen to this show um, with us. Um, I'm just going to request both. Um, Khalil and Daisy into the show. Um, just before we we get cracking with that, um, a couple of uh, our sponsors that I'd like to talk about first. Uh, we've got John Cat Education, who are a leading provider of education publications for the teaching profession. If you want to find out what they've got on offer at the moment, go to johncatbookshop.com and have a look on the homepage at the titles. And they've got some really special deals at the moment for Christmas where you can get some books at special discount price. And our other sponsor who was pinned to the space at the top is Witherslack Group. And again, if you're interested in what they have to offer, which includes lots of free webinars, uh, which are free to sign up for, uh, then you can have a look at the pinned uh, tweet that is in the space at the top if you're listening live. If you're listening back, visit witherslackgroup.co.uk and if you want to find out about their career opportunities, perhaps you're considering a change of school, then go to witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers to find out more about the different careers they have on offer. Now the theme tonight is all about the future of education, the past, the present, the future and what better guests to discuss this with. Um, Daisy, I hope you can hear me if you want to unmute yourself. Good evening. I can hear you, Tom. Hi, Tom. Great to be yeah, here. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, for joining me this evening. Really yeah. appreciate you giving up a bit of time to talk about this. No problem. And um, yeah. I, I thought, I mean, I will give a really short introduction for you, and then maybe you can fill in the gaps after that. Um, sure, sounds so, good. So, um, Daisy, you are a former maths teacher. Um uh, no, not English. 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 Oh, sorry. English. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, no, That's fine. the most appalling thing to say to anyone who teaches. <laughs> no, no, no. no um, cool. Former English teacher who um, <clears throat> yep. also you have been a proponent of, in inverted commas, no more marking. Would that be sort, sort yes. of? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I work, I work yeah. for no more marking. Yeah. But I mean, but I mean yeah. as a concept, yeah, I mean, not... as a sort of a... Yes, yes. Yep, definitely. We, we do comparative judgment, and that's the thing we do. Yeah, so, yeah. for sure. And um, also, you, I guess, I mean, you've got your myths of education. You've got, I mean, would, would you call yourself a serial author? 
<laughs> uh, I've written three books. Yeah, uh, I think that qualifies. Yeah, yeah. If that counts as a serial, then yes. I yes. think that qualifies. Yeah. And also, you were the team... Now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, the team captain on... And you won University Challenge. That's right, yeah. That's all, all correct, That is yeah. exciting. Did you not feel the pressure, though, on University Challenge? With... Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I yeah. mean... You, know, you think you're going to look like a mug on national TV. But but no, but yeah, I yeah. think, like, with Paxman in particular, like, he is quite intimidating, yeah. like, compared to yeah. other quiz yeah, people. Yeah, he is, yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's like. Yeah. yeah no, no, it was it was it was quite nerve wracking. Yeah. And you basically came across in that program as a genius, uh, <laughs> which yeah. which is not which is difficult to do on University Challenge when you're surrounded by <laughs> other geniuses. Um, so that that's yeah. a short introduction for you. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to whiz. Oh, before we talk to you, Daisy, I'm going to introduce our other guest, Khalil Great. Rouse. Khalil, do you want to unmute yourself? Evening, Tom. Now, I'm going to start with the most significant I'm, I'm, thing about you. You're a former teacher. The thing teacher is, taught radio host. Yeah, and problem is, you've just given Daisy the longest introduction of anyone I've ever heard. Are you saying? Are waiting, you saying I'm, you didn't win University Challenge, Khalil? I didn't. No, I, I applied, and they 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 um they didn't let me on the show. <laughs> but Khalil, do give us a proper introduction to yourself, so people know who they're listening to tonight. Yeah, so my name my name is Khalil Rouse. I used to be um, a teacher taught radio host doing a lot of things to do with pastoral CPD. I'm also, a, oh, I'm currently a teacher of maths, um, a senior leader in a secondary school overseeing safeguarding and mental health and well-being. Um, yeah, I've been teaching for what now? About 11, 11 years or so. So I've considered myself fairly experienced and yeah, just happy to be to be partially back on the teacher talk radio airwaves. Yes. Talking yes, yes. And thank you very much for joining in with this. Um, Daisy, I want to start. Let's get right into this. Um, Go for it. Because the whole thing tonight, the whole premise is sort of future of education. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that could obviously fall under that, that blanket, if you like. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I want to talk about is assessment. And Go for it. Um, the first thing I want to ask you about is, is measuring progress really possible in schools? Uh, yes, yes, I think it is. Um, so it doesn't mean to say that you can measure progress perfectly or that it's absolutely precise. But it, it, yeah, def- it definitely is. Um, and obviously, I suppose people have different definitions of progress. I wouldn't get too kind of complicated about it. I do think, you know, if a student is attaining at one point at the start of the school and then you measure their attainment again at the end, you can see how they've done as an individual. And then in terms of a school, you can obviously aggregate up all the students in a school. So I, I do think it's possible. So my, my straight answer is yes. But I am also aware, being in this world, that there are a lot of quite tricky technical issues that come with it. And there's a lot of tricky technical issues that, can cause big problems and are not necessarily well understood and um, you know you assumed I was a math teacher at the start you know I'm not I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an English student so you know I've had to learn a lot of those as I've gone along um, and, and they are tricky you know and they are technical issues and uh, you know there's some issues around measuring progress which are quite counterintuitive and, and I think you know so I think people maybe think it's simpler than it is 
Yeah. But I don't want to go to the other extreme and say that it's so complex it's impossible. Can no, you... I, I wouldn't want to say that either. So I think it is possible if we if we do it right and we're careful about it. Let's take um, English as an example, as a subject, yeah. as an example yeah. for a minute. If you were to say one measure of yeah. measuring progress yeah. that was that was reasonably good mm-hmm. versus one that was reasonably bad. Yeah. Which, which measures would you think would you think of? Well, what we do at No More Marking, we do comparative judgment of writing, and so you and we will measure progress over time. So at primary, for example, we do one assessment per year group per year, uh, and I was just a couple of hours ago on a webinar with some of our schools, and there's a couple of our schools who've been working with us for five years, so they've got five years worth of data. So that we're, I, I was just talking to them about their current year five assessment. And there's some of our schools who have been assessing that cohort of year five since they're in year one. Now, we've got numbers and data where we can say the average scale score of that year one cohort in year one, uh, well, that, sorry, that year five cohort when they were in year one was kind of, you know, about 480. And now the average is about 550. So I can put a numerical value on that and say across um, these 40 odd kids in this particular school, <clears throat> across uh, five years, you know, uh, four, four years, uh, five assessment points. Um, their their writing assessment has improved, you know, numerically. What I can also do with comparative judgment is show you the actual underlying pieces of writing. Um, and, and that is, I think, incredibly powerful when you actually say, let's look at a piece of writing that this student produced when they were in year one. And, you know, the typical year one piece, I was a secondary English teacher, you know, so I always, when I see year one pieces of writing, I've never known so many possible spellings of once upon a time. Um, and they all spell once upon a time, kind of W-U-N-S, <laughs> you know, like very phonetically. So you look at a year one piece of writing and you've got a student writing once upon a time, this happened and this happened and this happened. And you look at a year five piece of writing and, you know, it's kind of way more mature and sophisticated in the vocab and the sentence structure. It's obvious that students made progress, right? That's yeah. huge. Yeah. So, you know, that for me is a classic example of you obviously can measure progress. And with the naked eye, someone who's not a teacher could look at the year one piece and look at the year five piece and go, yes, progress. Obviously, as I say, you know, where it then gets more complicated is what about if we want to measure progress over six months, not over four years? Um, what about if we're looking at things where actually we think, uh, actually, I'm not sure that is progress. And the other interesting thing is, well, look, every student, probably even if they never went to school, <laughs> would make some form of progress between year one and year five. The interesting thing then is, well, what is, you know, typical progress? So I'm saying this student's gone from, you know, once upon a time to, you know, much more sophisticated mature. But what if actually most students do even better than that? So that's where, you know, you get these kind of more difficult questions. But if you want a good example of, of, of measuring progress, I think what we do is, you know, um, statistically and in terms of, you know, psychometrics, very robust. I think it's also very useful for teachers because they get to see the actual quality of writing underneath it. So I, you know, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but I would say that's a great example of, um, of, 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 of measuring progress well. As I say, I think some of the areas where I think, you know, that's less, less, you know, it's, you, know you, have, you have more issues. I think there's issues when you're measuring over very short periods of time because I think yeah. you pick up noise. That, isn't that typically what schools do? Yes. Yeah. No, and I, I've talked about this. So, again, what, what I talk about a lot is the difference between formative and summative assessment. And my point is that summative assessment, you want to leave quite a bit of time because summative assessments are of big, complex skills. 
So that's why I'm saying, you know, at primary, we assess once every year. And a lot of our schools, they say, but it's not enough, we want more. <laughs> and, and they say, you know, why aren't you measuring progress? We are measuring progress. We're just measuring over a longer time span. Yeah. Because, um, and the analogy I always use here is marathon running, right? So say you were starting out running a marathon. Would you run a marathon every day and, and think, right, if, if I get faster, if I run a marathon on Monday and I run one on Tuesday, if my mar- marathon on a Tuesday is faster than I'm on a Monday, I'm getting better. You, you wouldn't do that. It's mad. Nobody runs two marathons. No. Well, you know, some people do. But you, you wouldn't expect that's the only way you can measure your progress. So I always say that complex skills like writing, like reading, like maths, problem solving, they take you take time to improve on them. So you don't want to be assessing too frequently. But that is not me then saying that, you, you, you know, um, that, that's summative assessment. I, I do think you can do formative assessments more frequently. I think you can do formative assessments every, you know, every few seconds. <laughs> every question you ask is a formative assessment. But you can't, right. then, you can't then formative assessment, you measure it very differently. You can't measure it with a grade or a scaled score or a fraction of a grade or a scaled score. So, again, my marathon analogy, I often say if you're training to run a marathon, you might go to the gym and do some yoga, right? And you yeah. might you might measure the amount of time you can hold a yoga pose for. And maybe you can hold it for five seconds one day and you can hold it for 10 seconds the next day. Now, that's yeah. my equivalent of formative progress, right? But yeah. you can't, And that will make you, in the long run, a better marathon runner. But you can't measure it in terms of a marathon time. And that's what I would say, you know, when it comes to writing, we know from all the assessments we do that vocabulary is an enormous, um, an enormous factor in, in, in improving a reading, improving a writing, in fact, improving all subjects. OK, there's a big correlation between a bigger vocabulary size and doing well in all, all subjects. But um, suppose so supposing a lesson, you teach a student a new word. That's my equivalent of, you know, a yoga pose you can hold for five seconds longer. Yeah, that is genuine progress. There's a word that student didn't know, and now they know it. But you can't measure that progress with a fraction of a grade or with a grade. In the same yeah. way, you can't measure the, the yoga pose as a marathon time, right? Yeah. So uh, my whole kind of, you know, philosophy is we need to separate out formative and summative assessment and formative and summative progress. Summative progress, you've got to accept you're going to do it over longer time scales. And formative, that's something you can be doing much more frequently, um, but it's not something where you can be necessarily getting this kind of um, standardised data in the way that you do with... Something. So what, what, you're, what you're basically saying is a big summative assessment yeah. is a more reliable or a better measure of measuring progress than a, a lot of formative assessment points within a term. Yeah, so I, I think it's what, what, you know, I would distinguish between formative and summative progress as, as well as I'd distinguish between right. formative and summative assessment. So, as I say, I think you probably can measure formative progress in every lesson. So if we take just that really simple example of, of vocabulary, yeah, you know, I know it's, you know, one thing, but let's well, just then, imagine... But then the students might forget it, though. That is true. That is true. And that's why I'd always say, therefore, um, you, you know, you've got to set up a curriculum where you are you know yeah you're not just taking kind of them learning that word at the end of one lesson as as, as being it so because I think that was that was one of the the sort of criticisms of 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 maybe the inspectorate for example in 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 a few years ago was 
I, I, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. And was and that I think... sort of measuring of that? You know, the, yeah. the, was that idea of measuring their progress in a ten-minute chunk of a I, in a, in do, a learning I, walk? You know, I do. I do agree with that. I mean, my bigger beef with what the that, that used to happen there was people expecting it to be measured as a grade. You know, yeah. but I also agree with you. There is an issue. So there's, I would say, there's two issues with that model. One was people were expecting to kind of grade uh, every ten minutes. And that's yeah. just not that's not what grades are. That's the equivalent, I would say, of running a marathon every day, right? The other problem is, as you say, there is an issue around um, even if you learn a new word, for example, you can, you know, you can. In fact, you probably will. <laughs> well, from what we know about that learning, you'll forget it quite quickly. So, um, you, you know, you've got to um, you've got to also therefore have a curriculum that is reinforcing and, and embedding. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I still don't think that's an argument. I think that second thing about the long term learning, I'm, I mean, I'm very big on, on the long term learning. And I think it's absolutely the case that, um, you, you know, the, all this stuff about the forgetting curve, we forget things so quickly. <laughs> so I, I think that is enormously important. But I, I don't think that is an argument against testing and measuring progress in real time. I think it's just you've got to accept that um, you need to be testing and measuring progress like a lot in that formative sense. So if we go back to that vocab example, you know, let's just take a really basic example. I know I'm being quite reductive here just to be, you know, just to give examples. But let's say, you know, you, you want your students, there's kind of 50 words, new words that you want them to learn uh, across a, a half term or term. OK. And you've broken those down into a couple per lesson and you teach one in a lesson and you spend quite a bit of time in it. At the end of it, you know, at the start, the students don't know what that word means. And at the end, they can use it in a sentence. Now, you're absolutely right. There's a very good chance that the next lesson they will have forgotten what that word means. <laughs> but this is the other interesting thing. They're not in the position that they were, that they've completely, that they've gone back to exactly where they were when they didn't know that word at all. So that their, their knowledge of the word might have decayed. It might have faded a little bit. But when they come to relearn it, it will be quicker to pick it up again. Yes. Yes. So if you do a couple of rounds of that, they will, you know, get the word into long term memory. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that the very act of you testing them, this is where it's quite nice, the very act of them recalling that word from long term memory, um, that will actually help them to consolidate their knowledge of that word and to learn that word. So the act of doing the testing and the recalling is going to help them help them with the long term learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all those things, I think, yeah, that, you know, that's that's a great example of how you can measure progress and even better how the act of measuring progress will help. The students make progress. Got you. Um, Khalil, in a school, because obviously you're still teaching your heart away, what, what? I mean, the, the original question was, is measuring progress really possible in school? So you, you might want to have your sort of take on that. But the other thing I wanted to ask you is, how do you measure progress in your school? And in your um, class? Yeah, so, well, in my class, I, in you, it's, you don't do it, if they've learned something from what they didn't know when they walked in the room, they have made progress. Does that mean they've now got it into a long-term memory? No. Does that mean they're going to um, know it forevermore? No. Yeah. Um, that is very difficult to measure apart from the formative way where you just kind of look at who's picking it up and who's not picking it up. Um, School-wide, though, you've got... So we use, we use age-related grades. Um, so kids from all year groups... So we'll talk about year nine is a good example... If they're in year nine, then end of the year, they could get 
they we essentially grade them from year seven roughly. We give them grades of one to nine. Um, but then these are all relative to their cohort and also goes wider as to relative to the, the whole academy trust, essentially, the multi-academy trust that oh, we've yeah. got. So in maths, English and science, they can just get a grade, which then gives their relative, yeah, their relative grade compared to everyone else. So then essentially, if you stay, if you got a grade four at the end of year seven, and then by the time you got to year eight, you're still a grade four, you've actually made progress because it means that everyone's moved. You would assume that everyone's moved up and you've kept in the same position relatively. So you've actually accumulated more, whether it's knowledge or skill. You haven't like made above expected progress, but you've kind of just continued in your relative position. Because if you hadn't made progress and gone, or if you'd receded, then your relative grade would go backwards. And we use that model in our school at the moment. Um, so we have assessments that they take in maths and science that thousands of kids take, and they get given they generate, the, we generate the grade boundary, well, the academy generates the grade boundaries, and then we just track that. So what you're looking for is, as a minimum, the child stays roughly getting the same grade the whole time in those math, science, and science as it moves with their cohort, because the assumption is that everyone just gets better because you learn and accumulate more. And then if you're staying, if your relative position has stayed the same, it doesn't mean you haven't made progress. It just means you haven't made above um, yeah. you haven't like gone above and beyond. You get what I mean. So that's what we do in our school at the moment. That's interesting. Um, Daisy, have you ever heard of anything like that? That's yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, so you know, um, I think yeah, you know, for summative assessment, that is a consistent way of assessing that that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, because <clears throat> I think what you've got to realise it goes back to what I was saying before. You know, let's bring it back to like a piece of writing. Let's make it concrete. Yeah. Let's go back to yeah. that year one kid who's writing once upon a time and the year five kid, you know, four years on, who's now writing, you know, really amazing, grown up, fluent piece of writing. Your big question is that kid's obviously made progress, right? Obviously. Yeah. That. But, you know, you do kind of want to know have they made typical progress you know is that is yeah. that you know you do want to know like is that expected um and also what you want to know is if they started out kind of really behind so if you've got a kid who was coming in at year one and actually they, they they weren't writing at all you know they weren't even writing once upon a time they just couldn't write maybe in year five they're still kind of not writing that well but given where they were they've done pretty well so you do need to have some idea of kind of what is what is what is typical what is expected and i know sometimes this people kind of um you know when it comes to sort of you know an assessment model that requires an element of kind of comparison i know that people come sometimes feel that's you know that's not great and that's 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 bad because it should be about what you know and you can do but i think that element of in order to know what expected or typical is you have to have some idea of, of what, what is typical for a cohort, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely think, you know, what what um, what um Khalil's outlined, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, as a summative, as a summative metric, you know, and, and I would say, obviously what I'd also say is, yeah, you know, um, that is also something where, you're, you, you know, it's a summative metric, you're not going to improve on it incredibly rapidly. 
And so yeah. you want something formative alongside it where you can, you know, get that kind of more rapid progress. So, but yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. The... This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. For all those who say um, that we have become far too obsessed with the idea of students making rapid progress in 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 you know it's progress 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 it's yeah. it's, it's assessed grade progress how much progress have they made let's measure the progress let's look at what yeah. we're going to do next to get them to make more progress yeah so my next sort of topic which i want to ask you both and i'll start with you daisy is yeah. about the future of assessment in schools yeah. so um particularly thinking about the recent report that came out from labor where uh, I say it came out from Labour, it was from David Blunkett, but it was recommended, mm-hmm. to, it, it was commissioned by Labour, where they advocated quite radical reforms, actually, to assessment in terms of, and, and there are many campaigns that that advocate for much less formal assessment than we have now. Um, there are others who, who um, want a portfolio based assessment system where students almost almost like coursework in a way but not coursework it's almost like a collection of things they've done which are then assessed rather than sitting formal exams whereas there are others who are very much in the camp of we need to carry on as we are we need our 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 gcses we need our uh, a levels we need even our as's we need we need lots of uh, formal set piece exams and we need formal assessments in between of if you like in a traditional academic sense you sit in an exam hall and you you write a paper where do you sit on this so yeah you know lots of important issues there so where i sit on it is i think we do need assessment reform um but probably most of those things that were in that labor report i'm probably you know not that keen on maybe there were one or two that i i didn't mind the idea of but most of them i felt would not be helpful um I do think it's really important to, so it goes back to the kind of summative assessment point. I do think, you know, I do think it's a problem when you overdo the summative assessment. You know, I'll go back to that marathon analogy. It is a problem if if, if, you, if you've got a situation, and I've been in situations in schools where it's been like that, where you are kind of setting past papers every 15 minutes, <laughs> that is a problem, right? So I understand why people think, you know, we're too governed by exams and the exam dictates everything and that's a problem. I get why people think that, right? But for me, the solution is not to get rid of exams. I think exams are really important. And when I say exams, you know, externally marked assessments where a student is completing work independently in standardised conditions. And the reason I think, I think standardisation is an important word here. 
And I think standardization is a word that sometimes, yeah, gets a, a bad press, sounds a bit nasty. It sounds a bit like <clears throat> maybe a factory model where we're forcing all kids into a straitjacket. The flip side of that, though, you can look at it another way where we're kind of, you know, one way you can say oh, we're forcing all kids into a straitjacket. The other way you can say, well, every kid's got a level playing field. You know, every kid's got the same um, the same circumstances and the same the same kind of, you know, platform that they're operating from. Um, and, you know, you can say in another way that it's, you know, it's a basis of equality. And my big problem with a lot of the um, uh, portfolio and coursework assessment is they introduce a lot of grey areas which typically get exploited by parents and students who are more advantaged. And that is a reality of every system where this has been tried. And I think this is one of the things that is less understood uh, and, and, and poorly understood about about um, standardised exams. People think standardised exams are really bad for poor kids. They're really bad for disadvantaged kids. The reality is the opposite. The reality is that disadvantaged kids do better on exams than they do on coursework. The reality is that kids with kind of, you know, behavioural issues or SEN or, uh, you know, low attaining kids, they do better on exams than they do on, on coursework and teacher assessment. But is that because yeah. an exam in itself is quite a it's 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 not a very creative endeavor let's say it i mean obviously you might have you might have exams where they they go into a room and they create something for three hours and it's assessed but generally speaking our exam system is is quite um focused on knowing things and putting them onto a piece of paper recalling well, isn't I I, I, no, I I disagree with that, and I think creativity yeah. is one of these. It's one of these more complicated is, issues. You know, what what is creativity? Um, you know, so creativity. I keep it simple. A basic definition. It's something new and original. Yeah. Uh, something something. I'm sorry, originally useful. And th- there is the. To, in order to be creative, you need um, a grounding of of knowledge, and you need kind of a grounding. You know, you need to be able to recall and to know things fluently. So the idea that knowing things and recall is in opposition to creativity, I would reject. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of are exams creative or not? Again, you know, they not, certainly not can that be. They, are. Not, not they that certainly, they're... you know, there's no reason why. You, and, and, and again, I think sometimes maybe we're in this mindset where we think, well, creativity has to be, I don't know. Yeah. Constructing this incredible portfolio of whatever. Or why is answering a complicated math problem not creative? Um, yeah. Why is writing a story in an exam conditions? Why is that not creative? So, I, I, you know, and those are all things that are on the current exam system. So I think we've got to be wary of saying the current exam system, there is no creativity in it. I would say that that's not true. I think in lots of ways, I mean, literally, I remember most, a lot of what I did as an English teacher was teaching kids creative writing because it was a major part of the exam. So I, I yeah. don't think our exam system, I wouldn't say it's all about recall. And that's all I think, it's about. I, think, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's all about recall. I think mm. I think there is that argument that there is a set of things that mm. one needs to know, and then they are tested yeah. on it in a very short sort of snapshot way, mm. um, and that therefore is unfair on, regardless of the student. So why is that unfair? Why is that unfair? Uh, un- only unfair on on certain students who are not. Um, are perhaps not equipped well in terms of mm. uh, remembering things, in terms of dealing with pressure. 
Okay, in, yeah. term, yeah. in terms of revising. I mean, mm. some students are disadvantaged in the sense they don't know how to revise, whereas others do. And revising yeah. in itself is not necessarily... Uh, yes, it is a skill. So I, I think no. Look, I think those are more those are more serious objections, and I no, I do have some for that. So I said it's an equal level playing field, um, and I think that's true. I think exams are a level playing field, but you are absolutely right to point out that students do not, in their schooling, unfortunately, have a level playing field, um, and in terms of their home lives and their backgrounds. So you're absolutely right. You know, some students have quiet places to revise and blah blah blah, blah and help and what have you. Uh, other students don't. Uh, my point would be that coursework and portfolios are just going to exaggerate those differences even more. So the idea that coursework and portfolios are a solution to that, yeah. they're not. What no, is the solution got... to that? The solution to that is great teaching. The solution to that is like, getting every kid to know like how to revise. The solution to that is, I guess, breakfast and after-school clubs. So, you know, there are solutions to that. They're not coursework and portfolios. Khalil, oh, do you want to come in? No, I was going to say, but like, there, there's, surely there's a middle ground where you can have assessments that, I hate using the word assess again, but assessments that assess a child's proficiency in a certain skill without requiring them to have rote learned or like committed a lot of facts or information to, to memory, like reliant on that. So I think what Tom, you was, I kind of agree with you on that, Tom, because if you think about subjects, so I can say, for example, that when I was growing up, I had a very, I had a good memory. And I and I, I was in lessons with people that didn't have, for whatever reason, I had a better memory than other people. So then that just meant when it came to subjects like history, when not the whole skill, but one part of being able to get marks was being able to recall specific dates of when things happened. There is no, that doesn't make me any more, more capable or smart than someone who doesn't remember the date of the Wall Street crash, for example. But I was just able to do so because my memory was equipped in a certain way. But what I'm saying is, I don't think, so you've got on one side, you've got assessments that rely somewhat on recall, somewhat not. And I agree I, that it's not all on recall and it's not obviously not on recall. Is there a way where you can have those kind of assessments in subjects like, because the core skill of being a historian, for example, isn't necessarily knowing all the facts off the top of your head because people have textbooks. You don't need to, you don't, when you go out into, when, if you become a historian, you, just, you go and research, you look into things, you don't have to memorize them. You just have the skills to, be able to analyze, to critique, to compare, to draw out patterns, to look at, to compare different times in history and find links and wherever else and see what's consistent on the common denominators and everything else. That skill can be tested. Well, can that skill be tested in a way that doesn't rely on kids having to memorize so many things? So I so would if, you, just, if you can get an yeah. assessment that, if you can get an assessment that, well, summers that has an element of either it's unseen material or either it's you're provided with, everyone's given the same material and it's about what you do with it, as opposed to you need to arrive to the exam hall having all these things in your head. And if you don't have them in your head, then you're going to struggle. There's, that's where things become a bit more tricky at the moment. With these, the way assessments are at the moment, I feel like that's one of the difficult things. If your memory's not there and if you arrive at the exam hall without things in your head memorize then you struggle and i feel like that's we should surely have well i say should surely i wonder if there's scope for a better approach to enable those kind of students or to get a better chance of success essentially daisy <laughs> so i think this you know what you've we've said there is a very a great example of how assessment and what we do in assessment goes to the heart of how we think about education yeah. And what I would say is, 
actually all of the things you've talked about so all those skills you've talked about about being a historian so being able to spot patterns being able to um you know sort of think critically about evidence being able to i guess i would say you know also in history a big thing is like you know being able to think about causation right i would say all of those things what we've got to look at is what are those skills let's think about those skills and let's look at the research what do we know from cognitive science about what those skills rely on and what we know from cognitive science and we have learned more about how the human mind works in the last 50 years than in like the previous you know kind of 5,000 or whatever is that all of those skills depend on knowledge and they depend on memory so this idea that all those skills are opposed to memory and that memorization is just getting in the way of those skills I would say that is fundamentally wrong and that in order to be a good problem solver, in order to think critically and in order to um, spot causation, you need domain specific skills. And there is a whole literature on this within, within a lot of subjects and even within the, the field of history. So what does it mean to be a good historian? So actually, let's imagine a student who knows a lot about the Second World War and they know a lot about the causes of the Second World War and they can write something fantastic about the causes of the Second World War. That's great. You know, but does that mean, therefore, they can automatically kind of transfer that over and write about the cause of the first world. Well, if they don't know anything about the cause of the first world war, no, they can't. They're going to need to learn some stuff about the first world war. Uh, and, not, you know, that's just the reality of it. And the same would be true of a, even a professional historian. That even professional historians, you listen to them, they'll say, well, I have my area of expertise where I know a lot. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when I'm outside of that area of expertise, yeah, sure, I can like look things up, whatever, but I don't have necessarily that domain specific knowledge. And so the, the, the domain specific specificity of skills is like one of the massive findings of modern cognitive science. So this idea that there is this abstract critical thinking skill that you can just transfer over between different bits of history or different domains, it's just not the case. And, you know, I can give loads of examples of this. You know, I can give some jokey examples. Uh, I remember reading one once about, um, you know, a physics teacher who was saying, I'm a really great problem solver when it comes to physics. I'm not a great problem solver when it comes to my marriage. <laughs> right that's an extreme example um there's a great academic paper by one of the foremost researchers in this field where he and it's called it's got the most fantastic name uh, could steven spielberg have managed the yankees and he's talking about you know steven spielberg is a massively creative uh, person who has made all these kind of massive breakthroughs in you know film and creating these films that no one could have imagined could he have applied that creativity to being the manager of uh, you know, a, a baseball team. And the conclusion is no, because to be creative and to be expert, you need domain specificity. And that domain specificity rests on knowledge. And so then to come back to this point about memorization, you know, memorization is not this uh, kind of isolated, abstract, bolt on thing that you can outsource to, uh, uh, that you can just outsource to Google, right? So, again, let's have an example from, from, from maths, for example, yeah? Or let's have an example, actually, with reading. So let's imagine you're reading a passage, okay, and you don't understand 1% of the words. Okay, you can look up that 1%. Let's imagine you don't understand 5%, 10%, 20%. What happens then? Yeah, you can still look things up, but what happens then is it's a massive drain on your working memory. Okay, and our working memories are limited. And this is the fundamental kind of psychological reason why memorizing facts matters. It's because our working memories are incredibly limited. So we can handle four to seven new items of information at any one time. And that's kind of just a human limitation. It's not like there's some genius out there who can manage 20, right? We're all limited. And as far as we know, 
A lot of people try to work out this. There's no way you can expand that. You are stuck with your four to seven items of new information. And if you don't believe me, I, whenever I do a session on this, I'll put up a string of numbers, a string of 20 digits, and I'll say, how many can you remember? Yeah, and I've done this with thousands of people now. People get four to seven items, you know, four to seven numbers. That's what they can remember. So we have these incredibly puny working memories. So what is the way we can get around it if we can't actually increase it? The way we get around it is long-term memory. And so by committing facts to long-term memory, we don't have to rely on working memory anymore. So let's give an example from maths. You know, you're in the shops and you are looking to, uh, you know, a three-for-two offer. Is it actually a good deal or isn't it? You know, if you have to painstakingly kind of do every calculation, either by getting out a calculator or a pen and paper, you know, it's one of those situations where literally you will have kids who they get to the end of the problem and they've forgotten what the beginning was. Whereas if you've got your times tables really fluent, you just it, it just happens automatically, right? You don't even have to kind of think about it because it's all there in long-term memory. And so let's go back to that history example. This is why I think it is incredibly important for kids to memorize a framework of facts and a framework of, of world dates and historical dates. And I think that is not opposed to historical understanding that is a prerequisite for historical understanding and if we're particularly thinking about something like causation you know which is a key part of any historical you know inquiry i just literally don't know how you can think about causation without having some idea of you know what the events are when they happen and having that so solid that you don't have to think about it that it's automatic now i accept the point that for some students that is going to be harder than others. But the other thing I would say is the more facts you have, the easier it is to learn more new facts. But so there, there is was... a kind of really bad paradox here is that often those kids who struggle to learn facts, it's not because they're deficient in some way. It's just because, you know, there's this thing called the Matthew effect, that the more you have, the easier it is to learn more. So often the kids who are racing away and learning things and find it easy to learn things, it's because they've got a really nice solid base to begin with. And, and, and so by telling the kids who don't have that, oh, look, don't worry, you know, you can just focus on other things, we're actually making it even harder for them to catch up. So I would say it's really important for all students to have that bedrock of really crucial, you know, the framework of facts. And that actually, to a certain extent, that is skill. And the really deep and interesting insight from modern cognitive science is that skill is just applied knowledge. It's just a very large and flexible body of knowledge that's been committed to memory in a, you know, a really secure way. It's not this kind of separate thing that's opposed to knowledge. It is knowledge. Do you, do, one thing I was going to throw in there, Daisy, is that even I, I agree with a lot of what you've said there about, um, about uh, you know, embedding things into, into, into memory and, and actually I, and, the, and the sort of value in that. I, I agree with all that. The bit that I wonder about is the high stakes nature of our exam system as it currently is in the sense that if you're a student in school and you're in you enter year 11 at the moment so you're 15 going into 16 you enter year 11 and suddenly the entire focus um becomes about preparing for those exams um now i'm, I'm not saying this is right or wrong i'm just saying that's to me, that's what happens. We, we become very focused on getting the students prepared for, and the students themselves know 
that they're so high stakes, those GCSE exams, that they, they, they need to pass those exams. So it's almost like a lot of other things go out the window. And the students and teachers and, and everybody else are going to do anything they can in terms of, you know, okay, if it means we, we learn some of these things for the test, then we're going to do that because of how st- high stakes this is and how, how crucial it is that we get these results. The students think that. Many teachers, even if they don't think it, they have to think it because of how, how important that is within our system. So I guess what I'm saying is even though I, I, I think that element of what you were saying in terms of the value of remembering things, I totally get all that. But how does that tie into the issue of your sort of one-off high-stakes exam system that we currently have? Yeah, so no, you, you make a good point there. So look, let's let's take the point. Let, let's say that we agree on that bedrock of like cognitive science and knowledge is important and knowledge, you know, and a, yeah. a, a skill is applied knowledge. So then the question becomes, I think what you're saying is, well, essentially the question is, how do we design an exam system and indeed an education system that best kind of promotes all of those good learning things that we know from the science? Is that fair to say? That's what we what all want, right? We want, yeah, to create, an uh, we want to create system. an assessment yeah. system that encourages the kind of good learning practices that we know about from cognitive science. And, and also for me, yeah. and this is just me personally speaking now, and I don't yeah. know what Khalil thinks, we'll ask him in a minute, but yeah. for me, it's creating a system that is not as high stakes in the sense that two hour exam at the end of a two year course that sort of thing right so where i would say you know where i the the, the, the extent to which i'd agree with that so i think where we are agreed that we want to create a system that promotes all the good learning practice and we agree on what the good learning practice is and what you're saying is our current assessment system isn't promoting that and your biggest issue is the the high stakes nature of the assessments right so you think they don't you think they're not promoting your argument is the particularly the high stakes nature of stuff is not promoting good learning practices, promoting like shortcuts or it's promoting kind of things that are not good for long term learning. Is that is that your argument? I my personal argument is on the whole. Yes. Right. So where I would agree with you. So where I would say so where I would say the current kind of high stakes system of terminal exams is problematic in terms of promoting good learning practices the one area that I think it is problematic is um, cramming, right? So what we know from all of the research is that cramming is bad, okay? Mm. Um, so, uh, and what we also know is that whilst cramming is bad for long-term learning, so if we're all interested in all the things I said about long-term learning and blah, 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 blah cramming is not great. But what we also know is that cramming is not great for long-term learning, but it often does work for getting you through an exam, Okay. So if all you are interested in, if like you say, if, if we've got a high stakes system of terminal exams and all the kid is interested in is just getting the grade, potentially the shortcut is to cram like mad the night or couple of nights before, regurgitate all in the exam and come out the next day, uh, uh, you know, a couple of days later, uh, forget everything, but end up with a decent grade. OK, so that critique definitely has some truth to it. And I would say that is probably the biggest weakness of high stakes terminal exams. Um, but again, uh, and, and so I think you've absolutely got to acknowledge that, right? The question then becomes, how do we design a system that prevents that? And this is where it gets really difficult because... Would well, that's have... why I've invited you on, Daisy. Yeah. Sorry? 
That's why I've invited you yeah, on. Right. We're going to crack it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's crack it. Let's crack it, Tom. Um, so the, the, where it gets difficult is um, all of the other ways of kind of designing exam systems, uh, I, I think, potentially actually just make that problem worse. So let's take, you know, people often say, right, terminal exams, that's the problem. What we need are modular exams and modular exams will make cramming less likely. But it's actually the reverse. Modular exams make cramming easier and more likely. And they actually preclude you having a genuinely like synoptic overall vision of your subject. Yeah. So, again, let me give an example. You know, I'll give an example from from kind of from from English when I used to teach on a coursework module. Um, what you would used to have is you'd have a coursework essay on great expectations, a coursework essay on Romeo and Juliet a coursework essay, like a piece of creative writing or whatever. Uh, so there was kind of six coursework essays. You do them all in year 10. And I remember, you know, we used to schedule kind of, I think, the Romeo and Juliet maybe at the start of year 10. And so what would happen is the kids would study Romeo and Juliet for half a term, write their coursework essay at the end of the year 10 half term, right? And then that's it. They never looked at Shakespeare again. Okay. And then let's say those kids, they're now coming on to do A-level. And you're like, right, you know, we've now got to read the whole of Othello. <laughs> Uh, and it was two years ago when they read Romeo and Juliet and they maybe only read a scene of it because they were writing an essay on it. So all those problems you've got about like cramming, they're just as prevalent, if not more, with a modular system. And again, you know, Ofqual did some research on this with the when they moved away from modular system. And that is the issue that this modular system, it leads to this kind of banking model of education where you think, oh, you know, I've banked my Romeo and Juliet. It's all those problems you were saying about, about long-term learning. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with that. So, I, so, yeah. the, so the issue is, I, I think your critique of exams, uh, high-stakes terminal exams leading to cramming, I think that is a genuine issue. But I think modular, um, modular systems, it's even more of an issue. So then what is the solution? And having thought about this a lot, I genuinely think that um, there is an extent to which you, you cannot, you know, you cannot assessment your way out of a curriculum problem. But what you are talking about here, the, the issue, is fundamentally an issue of the curriculum and of curriculum sequencing. And look, I will say this about anything. If someone is absolutely determined to kind of do things the wrong way and to cheat, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of build a system that, that will stop that. Um, what I think we have to try and do is to build kind of syllabuses and 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 schemes of work and curriculum sequences, which you know schedule um, uh, which which schedule kind of all of the the learning in such a way that students most inevitably, <laughs> if they're attending school and like following the curriculum, are going to have things sequenced in such a way that they're going to be kind of learning for the long term. So that's why I think you know, if we're looking at a typical kind of GCSE course, we have to be looking at developing ways of saying, look, you know, this is the optimal way of sequencing and teaching the content on this course. So go back to my, you know, give a concrete example, go back to my Romeo and Juliet example. Let's say now we're in a world where we've got a terminal exam with the Romeo and Juliet at the end of the two years. Yeah. What we've got to come up with is what is the best way of teaching across those two years that will promote kind of long-term learning you know and the exam success and what can we do to you know develop the resources and the cpd and the student revision techniques and everything we need that will that will deliver that 
And maybe it's saying, you know, right, OK, maybe we do do it in a block of a half term at the start of year 10. But then maybe every one day, every 10 days, I don't know, I'm making, you know, I'm coming up with things here. <laughs> you know, you're having like some form of, 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 of quick revision. Right. And that revision, you know, you're, you're tweaking that and optimizing that. So the students are not forgetting kind of Romeo and Juliet. Right. So I do think that we have to. The thing about assessment, the assessment system is we cannot expect the assessment system on its own to do all the heavy lifting. You know, we cannot. There is no way of designing a test that is so perfect that it will just automatically lead to, uh, you know, the the, the 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 right teaching and the right way of, of, of getting towards it like we can't expect that you can't put that weight on any form of assessment what we have to do is create assessment systems almost that uh, don't encourage bad practice <laughs> so i think there are some assessment systems which almost encourage bad practice so we have to come up with an assessment system that almost creates the space for a good curriculum we can't expect that an assessment system will create you know be the good curriculum in and of itself what we just have to expect is that the curriculum can create a space the assessment can create a space for teachers and everyone involved in education to create the good curriculum um and that is what we are trying to do at no more marking okay that's very very much what we are doing we have obviously a summative assessment that we think cuts down loads of the bad practice involved in rubrics and we are building up the right sequencing of lessons that is going to help students become better writers. So everything I'm saying here, I'm trying to live. You know, I'm trying to live what I'm saying. Um, that I'm trying to create summative assessments that leave the space open for good teaching, and then to fill up that space with the good teaching, and all the time to be monitoring what's happening, to check that the the you know the lessons we're creating are working and are helping students become better writers. Um just before we move on i want to say thanks everybody for joining in i hope you're enjoying this discussion as much as i am um it's really really fascinating so thanks everybody who's who's dropped in live i mean obviously this will be available to listen back to as well as a podcast um if you are listening and you fancy doing what i'm doing and could probably do a better job then dm teachers talk radio to get yourself a little host pack and find out more about hosting with us and all the benefits of doing that. Um, the other thing I want to do is thank our sponsors for this evening, which is John Cat Educational and Witherslack. Um, if you want to find out more about them, uh, they're both pinned to the tweets at the top of this space, so you can just have a little browse in your own time on those two. Um, if anybody wants to comment or get involved in the discussion tonight, then you can just hit the little icon in the bottom right-hand side with a little speech bubble in it, and you can send us a tweet and we will reply to it or we will pose it to our, our, our panellists this evening um, and try to engage in some conversation around it. Alternatively, if you want to actually ask a question verbally, then just hit a little um, mic icon in the bottom left-hand side to request in to speak. Um, so, Khalil, um, I want to ask you what your thoughts on all that was. I mean, do you think the assessment system is relevant and fair how how would you want to see it change or are you happy with the status quo it surely it comes a lot of this comes down to what what we're even trying to prepare students for 
because from what I, my understanding, in all my years of teaching and being in secondary school, that the whole education system at the moment in secondary school is geared towards equipping kids to go on to further education. And if that, I don't see, and I think we're starting at a lot of schools at the moment trying to develop like richer curriculums where they actually expose kids to not just kind of a, I would say grades factory, that kind of push towards further education only. But I think that's what the education system will set up for us. It will set up to get people into higher education so they can go into the workforce. Um, and then, and the problem, well, I say problem, and higher education is assessed at the mo a lot of higher education is assessed in these kind of summative ways where you have to produce either, where you have to either sit down in an exam hall for a long period of time, yeah. three hours at a time, and you're assessed that way, or you're producing, you're writing up a, whether it's a dissertation or thesis or whatever you're writing up, which again is rigorous work. So then the secondary education system is preparing kids for that. That's what it's doing at the moment, in my opinion. So that means we have to, I understand why our assessment practices are a kind of microcosm of what's largely expected in university when you go down the kind of, the kind of academic route. Is that right? Who knows? Depends what you think the purpose of education is. If you think the purpose of secondary education is to prepare for higher education, then maybe it's doing what it's supposed to do. But not everyone goes on to higher education. So, so what's happening with those people? What's happening with those people? Um, I agree, by the way, with um, there was a lot on what Daisy said about the curriculum and the emphasis on that. I wholeheartedly agree. In an ideal world, you have a you have a your focus is a broad, rich curriculum, um, and then the byproduct of that is kids also do well in their assessments but they leave school, they should leave school with, a, with their eyes opened to as many different opportunities as possible, or as many different avenues, as many different, different bodies of knowledge that they can now, I don't know, explore and dive into. And doing well in their assessments was also a byproduct of that. I think that's what, we, that's what I'd want from the from schooling system. Rather than being assessment driven, you wanna be curriculum driven. And then they also happen to do well in assessments. Um, are the schools there? No, because people, schools are, there's a lot of focus on grade performance. So then schools just operate in the climate that we're in. So then they just focus on grades. So then they say, well, we're going to forego this rich curriculum. We're just going to focus on getting these grades because that's what, that's what we need at the moment in this, in this Ofsted world. I'm not going to mention, I'm sorry I mentioned the O word, Tom, by the way, because I know we're, <laughs> I know it's, um... Don't worry, I'm I'm feeling pretty chill tonight, yeah. Kalila. Amanda, Amanda Spielman dropped in, so Amanda, come back, join the conversation. You know, we 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 want to hear what Amanda Spielman thinks about all of this. She came and she went. Mm. Come on, come back. But I get, like I said, I think in summary, I think it's down to purpose. If we're saying education's <laughs> there, if educate if education's there to prepare kids for further education, then you, I can't see another way of assessing because. That's unfortunately the way that further education ends up being assessed. So you need to mirror it. But is that what education is supposed to be there for in this day and age with 2022, where there's so many different avenues that people can go to? I know it, the schooling system was first, correct me if I'm wrong, but first kind of established to just get people into the, to learn how to operate in a kind of restrictive kind of work environment. So they'd be trained in their characters so that when they left, they could just kind of go into work and know what's expected. But we're not in that day and age anymore. I want to so, kill. I want to trigger Daisy again because Daisy, Daisy, you've written an article for Schools Week, and yeah. and part of it talks about jobs ch don't change that fast. Um, so 
I think Khalil's making some tremendous points here about what is the point of education. And I think he's absolutely yeah. right to do that because, and I talk about this a lot, like what is the point of education? And I think that Khalil's right in that, you know, potentially we do say too much that um, uh, education is about preparing for jobs. Um, and we do say too much that it's about further education. And I would like a more expansive kind of view of it, which would be preparing students to be good citizens. Yeah. Which I think includes, would include, I'm not saying I'm against the program for jobs, like that's obviously a part of being a good citizen, right? Um, but I would like a more expansive view. And that would take, that would take into account both that economic aspects, but also aspects around, uh, you know, contributing to your community, understanding the world you live in. You know, it's important to understand the world you live in, not just because it's going to make you money or get you a job because you're going to have some awareness of, you know, what's going on in the world and how the people around you think and what have you. So I would like a more expansive definition. And I think the ones that focus too narrowly on, on, on jobs are problematic. And yeah, I've written an awful lot about um, how I think there are some very misleading things as well about, um, but, um, but they, uh, oh, about, sorry, about jobs in the future. Yeah. So go on. But go could on. I, I, I just wanted to cut in and ask you though, if we think about artificial intelligence, and, and as one element of that, automation, right? Automation, yeah. artificial intelligence. In the not so distant future, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, so much that we do now is going to probably be automated. I'll give you a little example. There was yeah. a show on Teachers Talk Radio last week, Graham Stanley, on artificial intelligence. And during this show, he demoed... Um, writing artificial intelligence writing software where you input a title like tom's journey to work and it and it writes a story for you right yeah i've spent all day you know at work we spent a chunk of the time today playing around with this so yeah, yeah. you know I yeah. Get people yeah yeah of course yeah now now my, yeah. my point is that now now obviously i understand that you know the value is in someone being able to do something i i get that it's, but but when we're entering a world where potentially everybody can just cheat <laughs> what's the point i'm being very cynical now but you know um yes children of course need to know how to read and write because they wouldn't be able to use the artificial uh, the artificial intelligence writing generator in the first place but without knowing what what it was asking them to do but but equally you know, if, if they said write a story about jelly beans and all they need to do is write the word jelly beans and press return and it writes the story for them. And then they can read that story and then maybe edit it or use it. However, they... do you know what I'm saying? I do. Like I saying... do. Look, I think these are fascinating issues and I'm fascinated by GPT free, you know, this AI tool. And I, I wrote a chunk about this. So I wrote my book, Teachers versus Tech, a couple of years ago about this. And the world moves on very fast. But I still think what I wrote in that holds really true. And let, so let me, and this goes back to my point about it's not just about training for a job. It's about being a citizen. It's about being a human being, right? So here's the example I give, okay? Um, like almost maybe 100, 200 years ago, people had a similar kind of panic around machines being stronger and faster than humans. Uh, and there's, I, I can't remember the exact kind of thing about it now, but there's this, um, there's even this kind of, you know, folk song. Uh, around like you know when the machine the machine that's chipping away at rock gets better than like the human being doing it uh, and then yeah. people are like my god what's going to happen you know the machines are better than humans and in physical terms 
for a long time now, we're accustomed to the fact that there are machines that are way more efficient and powerful than, than humans, right? But does that mean that we say, well, you know, there's no point like, you know, playing football, there's no point running, or there's no point being fit and healthy, because, you know, we can just rely on the machine. Like, no, we don't say that, because, you know, going for a run or playing a sport or being active and healthy, like, that's part of being a human being that we want to do, right? <laughs> um, so in a sense, the fact that we've been freed from the economic necessity of this, it, you know, that's incredibly liberating that we haven't got the economic necessity of it. But, you know, it means we want to do it for human flourishing. And, and the other analogy I talk about a lot, I talk about the development of like drawing and the camera. So if you go back again a couple of hundred years, Royal Navy, Royal Navy cadets, part of their training was to learn to draw. OK, and the reason they had to learn to draw, it wasn't because they were trying to develop, and make them more sensitive and expressive. It was because to be like a good naval officer, you've got to be able to like, you know, drawing was like a really valuable skill. You know, it had this like economic necessity. Right. And that is not true anymore because we've got cameras. Yeah. So, you know, that economic necessity of learning to draw has been, you know, taken away by a camera. But does that mean we don't learn to draw? Like, no. Like, if you're going to just define everything in terms of, well, if a computer can do it, we shouldn't do it. That's crazy. And, and actually, that's not how we live. And another analogy, you can see all these, that chess is really similar. So when Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, there were all these people who said, you know, chess is over. No one's going to want to play chess anymore because the computer can win it. Chess actually has had a complete renaissance. And actually, um, the fact that all the computers now are way better than humans, people still want to have human games of chess. <laughs> uh, and in fact, they play the games of chess as humans and then they run them through the engine and they think about how they could have got better and the engines help them to learn chess better. So I think we need to get away from this idea. Like if we are going to move to a world, I'm not convinced it is true we're going to move to the world where the, like, the machines you know, can do everything. But actually, if we do move to that world, in lots of ways, amazing, right? That, that we, we remove a lot of these economic necessity. It's a new era of abundance. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then education is about human flourishing, right? Uh, and it's about what do we need to do as humans to be the best humans we can be? But, but okay, my, so that would be my point. My, my question, though, would be is that, for example, if I'm a student and I'm 15, 16, 17 years old, and I'm, I understand your point about the nature of learning and the joy of learning and the, the, the things that can be produced by yeah. humans. I get all that. But if I'm a 15-year-old who's maybe not got many opportunities um, mm -hmm. and my success later on isn't particularly secure in the sense that, mm. you know, I know or I, I don't know, but I, I'm looking at my lessons, my curriculum in school, and I'm going... Is this going to help me in five years or 10 years or 20 years time? If some of them, you, you know, for example, let me put out there entrepreneurship, right? Let's say entrepreneurship. I know we've got business studies. I get that. But I'm saying, you know, let's say that became one. I know I'm not saying it should happen, but I'm saying let's say it did become one of the core subjects. One of the core subjects on the curriculum was entrepreneurship. Yeah. And the reason we're doing that is because. We're saying that, that, and sorry about this, Khalil, but we're saying that a lot of, say, for example, the stuff we do in maths will be done by robots. And that's why we're making that change, because the skill of entrepreneurship or, or ideas generation. Yeah, or... yeah. So, I mean, look, you know, a number of problems with this. OK, so 
and I, I, you know, I do, I do work like this kind of extensively in, in teachers versus tech. So I'm not, I'm not just kind of, you know, making stuff on the spur of the moment. So let, 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 we've got two possible worlds, right? We've got world one where the machines are going to take over and do everything. Um, and <laughs> it's of, all, you know, Daisy, if someone just joined this space yeah, right yeah, now, we yeah, are yeah. actually having a serious conversation. Yeah, yeah. And then we've got world two where actually, you know, actually that's overhyped and there's always going to be more of a role for humans in the economy than we think. So, I've, you know, there's two broad kind of worldviews there. And I probably lean towards the second, but I see the point of the first and making predictions in this stuff is is not not easy. Right. But my argument is whichever one of those worldviews you subscribe to or if you're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You still can't have entrepreneurship on the curriculum. Because entrepreneurship is still in order to have that skill of entrepreneurship, it is still dependent. It's all that stuff I said before about working memory. Right. It's still dependent on, I don't know, you know, knowing what compound interest is, which ultimately then is dependent on, um, you, you know, your times tables. Right. So even if the robots can do loads of things, you know, it goes back to my like my drawing example, my chess example, like robots are better at chess. You know, you know, machines are better at chess. If you want to learn chess, you don't just suddenly default because a chess a computer can play chess really well. You don't just suddenly default and start <laughs> learning chess at a much higher level. You still have to learn, like, the pawn makes this move and this is what castling is and this is the king. You still have to learn the basic moves. So Hold on, why? Whatever but... worldview you are existing on the role of machines in the future economy, entrepreneurship should not be a school subject. Khalil? No, I just wondered what the why. What's your reason for why it can't be a school subject? Because uh, entrepreneurship is it, what I said before about skills. I think because it ba- you need you need the foundations in order exactly, to become exactly. an entrepreneur. I love right. Then why can't you just why can't you just do it when you're like sixteen, seventeen? So I, I so that's okay. So I love entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship is brilliant. Right, it goes back to all the things I was saying before about skills. But entrepreneurship rests on domain specific skills, and you know at the primary, secondary, even I would say upper secondary level, like the role is to be acquiring those domain specific skills that are going to enable you to be an entrepreneur okay and and i would say actually even at university like you need some element of what are the kind of actually specific skills and domain specific knowledge you need to be an entrepreneur right so and again being an entrepreneur in one domain is really different from being an entrepreneur in another right i used to work on a market school my mum and my mum and dad ran market schools all their lives right Uh, and we used to sell these sell clothes they used to sell um, handkerchiefs i would tell you something if you're on a stall selling clothes and handkerchiefs, people always joke, don't they? One of my favourite jokes when people say about politicians, they say, oh, you couldn't manage a whelk stall. And I always say, do you know how hard it is to run a whelk stall? Yeah, because yeah. fish goes off. So if you're an entrepreneur running a whelk stall and you're an entrepreneur running a, a clothes stall, that in itself, those are two quite domain-specific things. Like your whole logistics setup is totally different. My parents didn't want to run a whelk stall because stuff goes off. Yeah, people get sick, <laughs> right? So... That is my example of domain specificity. Uh, you, know, you know, we're not having uh, lessons on entrepreneurship. Let's have a lesson on, you know, the, the underlying knowledge and skills you need to become an entrepreneur. But, Daisy, just, just to say that, because this is really interesting to me, is, okay, let's imagine I sit there as a 13-year-old and uh, entrepreneurship is one of the, the, the topics, if you like, on the curriculum, maybe even a core subject. And... I, for example, one thing we don't teach, I don't think we teach uh, young people how to sell, for example. You, you just mentioned market stalls, right? For yeah. a 
480. It matters what you're selling. It really does matter so, what you're selling. <laughs> yeah. I would say this is someone who's done this. What you sell matters. Yeah, but I'm saying that. And I I'm think actually people example. are like, you know, yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying like yeah. take it as a... but, but say take it as an example. It's it's a student who wants to set up a shop or a market store or something and they want to sell fruit, right? They don't cool. for me, do they need to have knowledge of fruit to do that? Do they need to have knowledge of the product or do they need to have knowledge of the seller? Oh, look, I'd say, shall I tell you what the most useful, like, shall I tell you, have... look, I've just said to you, I don't think everything should be about the economy, but shall I tell you what the two most useful, every study that's yeah. been done ever in the world, what are the two most useful, economically valuable skills, literacy and numeracy? It's not learning how to say. Oh, Daisy, you're just cutting out a bit. Up. I don't know if that's just me, though. Um, uh, one sec, let me, let me move. Hang on. Um. Uh, Daisy was yeah. clear. Daisy's been clear for me. Tommy, it was you that was cutting out a little while ago. Is that me. just me or is Daisy cutting out? Can someone tell me? I don't know. Your your voice cuts out for me. me. I know that, and right, I've got full bars. I've got I've got my Wi-Fi is full up to the top, mate. So I feel like I'm I'm safe in this whole thing. Be me. I'm gonna I'm gonna move. <laughs> I'm gonna move just in case it's me. Sorry, Daisy. Carry on because I didn't hear that last bit. So uh, there is a global research literature on this. What are the most valuable? What are the most? Uh, so I've just said, I don't think the whole of school should be about the economy, right? Uh, that's and uh, uh, whether or not the robots take over or not. For me, it's about more than that. But if it were to be, what are the two most valuable, econ uh, economically valuable skills? And there is, a, like I say, a global research literature on this. And it is really clear it is literacy and numeracy, Right. Those are the two things. And we do not, and most countries do not, do as good a job as they could on literacy and numeracy. So I would say before we're thinking about kind of, you know, some of this domain unspecific stuff about what it is to sell, I would say, like, can we improve everyone's literacy and numeracy? Like, that is the thing that is going to have a massive economic impact. And it will do all those things I talked about, about citizenship and being a good citizen and human flourishing too. So that would be my priority. Interesting stuff, Khalil. Do you, do you have any comments on any of this? Because I think it's really interesting. I mean, interesting. I know you're a maths teacher. We've yeah. Ever and and Catherine's here as well, the executive princess of maths. We've got lots of maths teachers here, and I'm I'm really stoking the fire here. But I'm saying, could you ever envisage a world where maths wasn't a core subject? <laughs> no, not at all. That's nonsense. Um, but, but I think, but there's um, there are courses out there where they do. Because all the fundamental skills that you would need in order to, I don't know, access anything like setting up a business of your own or all those kind of things. I guess there's one argument is you need to learn them first so that when you want to go and do the, the business setting up or the independent um, entrepreneurial activity, whatever you want to call it, if this is in school, the, you have to learn these skills beforehand. The other argument could be that you learn them underneath the umbrella like you learn that there's not at the same time but as in your skills now have a purpose so you could have a situation where and i'm just thinking very fancifully here you have a situation where i remember teaching a few topics like this in the past pro kind of like project based where you learn about things like percentages and you learn about things like interest you learn about saving you learn about um finance 
all through like monetary calculations, you learn the skills under the, and it's all under the umbrella of being able to actually have a purpose with it. Cause you're going to now and use these skills to go and do set up your own this or create your own that. And it meant when I did this with kids, these kids are about year, well, they're now, I think about year 12, I think we did it in. They, I've never seen kids so engaged in like doing mundane tasks, like just mundane arithmetic or mundane calculations or whatever. They were so more engaged with it because it now had a purpose because kids always bat it back when you get to like abstract, more more abstract math saying, when will I ever need this? But in an ideal one, I say ideal world, I, I love learning for learning's sake, first and foremost, let me just put that out there. But I also think if so many kids are crying out for when will I need this, when will I need this? Are we, is there more that we should give as a, as, as educators to be like, you know what, let's actually, let's actually create something that's going to show when you will need this, as opposed to falling back on, well, sometimes it gets good to know some more things than you did before you came in the room, which is great, by the way, I do agree with it. But um, I guess my main point is this, with this entrepreneurial thing that you were talking about, I was just asking, I was just playing devil's advocate, just thinking, if it were a course, if it were a subject, could you somehow create it so that all the fundamentals were still taught, but were taught with a purpose? So you can explain, we are going to learn how to do X because we will later need it when you create this for yourself. We're then going to learn about how to do Y so that later on you're going to need it to therefore create this for yourself. And then you provide them with the skills and then you let them flourish and you send them off like little birds and little doves and you say, right, go and create something using these skills. I feel like you get more buy-in from kids, personally. I just wonder if there's an element of that we could somehow get into the education system. I would have that in my school, personally. I would want a little bit of that <laughs> for the older kids. Daisy, any, any thoughts on any of that from, from Khalil? Oh, you might need to unmute yourself, bottom left. Sorry, yeah, great. There you so go. I think you, you definitely want to make it um, make it clear to students. I think it is important to, uh, you need to have hooks. You know, a lot of what we yeah. teach in schools is abstract. And you do need to have hooks. You know, the word relevant is a tricky one. Like sometimes I hear the word relevant and I get really worried about it. Um, but you do need to have a hook that, get students to understand why it is that the concepts that these abstract concepts are teaching you know that the relevance they have and um uh you know compound interest which i briefly mentioned earlier is a good example because compound interest is one of these classic kind of quite abstract concepts and i, I mean i think there's a great einstein quotation where he says um yeah he's something like i mean i mean probably einstein didn't say because half you know all the quotes on the internet that einstein said he didn't say but there is some <laughs> yeah. there is some kind of famous thing about compound interest that people who understand what compound interest is will benefit from it and those who don't understand it are doomed to be paying it okay yeah yeah it's not it's not a, a massively advanced mathematical topic you know it's a relatively you know it's, it's not simple either but it's not crazy advanced it's not like we'd say oh only a few pupils could ever get their head around it you know, um, and it's something that's got enormous implications. We were talking about entrepreneurship for that, but for whole loads of things in life, right? Um, so what is kind of the right way of teaching that? So I definitely think that if you were starting to teach that, you, you, you know, it would be totally be appropriate to give some bit of an explanation about why this is quite an important concept and the enormous impact it can have on your life. Where I do get slightly wary, though, is when if we were going to say, you know, and you were talking about kind of project-based learning, 
The project-based learning problem goes back to what I was saying before about working memory, long-term memory, is that we have limited working memory. So the problem with all project-based learning is that you're overloading working memory because you are just, uh, there's so many other things going on other than just learning about kind of the compound interest, right? So if you're going to, and again, the compound interest is a good example. I would say if you want to teach that, totally appropriate to have a hook at the start of the unit when you talk about some of the really important applications, but there needs to be, in order for students to really understand it and go back to what we were saying right at the start, the long-term learning, there needs to be massive opportunity for deliberate practice, for deliberate practice of lots of examples of compound interest. Yeah. Um, and that is what is going to give you that understanding of it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think projects, we've got to be we've got to be careful. Like I'm all for getting kids to see why something is important. But we also have to have the kind of really focused time to focus on these difficult concepts and, and, and you know, really, really master them. In an ideal world, Daisy, would you have both? Well, in, in an ideal world, it wouldn't be that both. Again, it's not a both. It's, for me, it's not that the two are opposed. Like, what I would have instead of both is I'd have, like, a, a, a staircase that goes up. <laughs> and, and the staircase might go up over years. You know, it's not just over a couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, I, well, I, I mean, when you start yeah, well, teaching, you're breaking stuff down into the smallest constituent parts because you don't want to overload working memory. And the downside of that is that when you break stuff into its constituent parts it becomes really abstract and doesn't look like it's got much of a basis in the real world. But as I say, the reason you have to do that is when you put it in the real world, the real world is not a great learning environment. Okay. That's why we have schools. Like if the real world was a great learning environment, we wouldn't need schools. <laughs> so the point is we're constantly kind of doing this balancing act in that we, you know, if we're just doing the real world task, that's going to overwhelm working, working, mem uh, working memory. So we have to be breaking it down. But you're absolutely right. We can't lose sight that there is an end goal, which is putting all the pieces together into the real world task. So I've, I've talked about common interest. You know, I'm not a math teacher. Let me go back to writing, which I do a lot. We do a lot of writing assessment. The end goal is to write fluently and write brilliantly. And for me, that almost is a project like to complete a really difficult, complex, lengthy piece of writing on, a, on, a, on, on some kind of you know, any kind of topic. That is almost you know, that is a project in and of itself. So it's not that I'm saying we never do writing, like my literal, my day job is assessing writing. OK, but then what is the best way of teaching that? I don't think I'm always clear about this. We should be doing extended writing every lesson. I think we need to be breaking it down into its constituent parts, teaching those constituent parts and then putting them together and making sure we're not putting them together too quickly. And again, that's where we need the formative assessment. Like at what point are the kids ready to add the next building block? And then when we put the building blocks together, we can build up to that extended piece of writing, which is a bit of a project. So when you're saying, you know, would I have both? It's not about having both. It's about, I would say it's a sequence. It's a, it's a journey. You know, it's not a pendulum. I always say that when we think of things as a pendulum, like projects or, or subjects or, uh, you know, knowledge or skills, that's the wrong way of thinking of it as two binaries. Like instead, think of it as a journey, like a journey up a mountaintop. And, and it's every little step and every little sequence. And the question is, at what point are the kids ready to take the next step? At what point are they ready for that next step? And, Jaleel, and is that sort of what you were getting Yeah, at? I guess so. I guess it's more, it's, um, it's just the, um, it's, to, we need to have an education system that answers the question, well, in an ideal world, answers the question. I feel like there's a gap of the, when will I, when will I use this? When will I need this? So that's all, that's when I was asking, would you want to do both? What I'm asking is, 
yes, I know you need deliberate practice in order to become, to master a specific skill. You'll need that. You can't just be taught it once and then be expected to apply it. I get that. Um, when I meant, is there both? What I mean is, in an ideal world, should we be having enough time to be able to do the practice so that they can become fluent, but then there needs to be, well, not needs to be, some form of a lot of the practice and then we build up to an assessment where what they're really being assessed on is if they can still do that same thing they've been doing deliberately for a while and just splurge it out. Um, or is there something we can, is there something more we can do to give them something? Like, I know you're saying how um, putting the, it's, you get like cognitive overload when you have those kind of problems, but then that's also the real world. So are we supposed to be, <laughs> we supposed to be trying to prepare them for that? So let's, when they get older. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you know, my whole thing about the, the real world, there, there is a paradox here, it's chicken and egg, you know for the real world isn't always to do real world tasks. Yeah, yeah. And I, I realise that. that sounds paradoxical, but that that's like the reality um, of 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 a lot of things. It goes back to my marathon example. Like, you know, do you get better at a marathon by running a marathon every day? No. You look at someone who does goes to a yoga class and goes, oh, you know, well, that's not a real world running task. You're just doing yoga. It's like no, like actually, people who do yoga or thing or they're going to the gym, that is going to make them a better runner, even though it doesn't look like running. You know, I always joke here, actually, um, uh, that, you know, what, what, what converted me to the thought yoga could work. I don't know if you remember, like, Ryan Giggs, he had all these injury problems as a young, a young player. And everyone was like, oh, his career is going to end really young because he has all these injury problems. And he ended up playing at the highest level until he was, like, 40, right? And he was this big yoga enthusiast. Uh, and, and, and this is in the 90s. And people, you know, a lot of these grizzled, like, commentators on football were like, what is a footballer doing, doing yoga? Like, what a joke thing to do. You know, my day, they just played football solidly. You know, you just went out and you played three times a week and that's how you got better at football. And it's like, well, yeah, and that's how, like, your career ends at the age of 28, right? So you can get really kind of old-fashioned and be like, the way you get better at stuff is just doing it and you just got to learn in the real world. And it's like, well, maybe we should be thinking, you know, a bit more laterally and say maybe, you know, a bit less running, a little bit more yoga. Maybe that makes you a better runner, you know? So that's that's what I'm saying about... um about all of these things like we definitely want to prepare kids for the real world does that mean doing real world tasks over and over again not necessarily blooming heck khalil oh uh, no like i feel like we're just going we're going going around yeah. the circles i'm happy to move on it's not problem at all right. we talk about marketing let's talk about marketing well <laughs> i wanted to that's what i wanted to finish off on daisy i don't know if you've got yeah. another five minutes or whatever but i wanted to talk about marking um and i wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that in many, many schools around the country, there are still requirements for frequency of marking. There are still there is still a big emphasis on written marking. Um, what are your thoughts, Daisy, on marking so, and marking policies? So I think I'm a big advocate. I think you know. Oh, Daisy, you're just dropping it I, again. Sorry. I don't know if it's me, but it feels like you're going distant from the mic and then close okay. to the mic. Let me, let me, let me. How's that? How's that? That's better. I okay, think. great. I think that for me, um, one of the things I think if you're, a, if you're a senior leader and you're in charge of assessment in your school, one of the things I'd always say is try and try and time cost your school's marking policy and try and look at it and say, if a teacher did this marking policy honestly and fairly and they did everything that's required of it, how much time would it take? Mm. And when you do that with a lot of marking policies, they are totally unsustainable. Yeah. They're just not realistic. And, and then the other thing I say, don't just do it for English and math. Do it for RE. Do it for history. Do it for the teacher who's teaching 300 kids a week. Once, you know, once a week, for, you know, they're teaching 300 kids. Yeah. 
And a lot of marking policies are not sustainable. And then not only that, not only are they incredibly burdensome, so the, the thing I, I, I hate about written comments is written comments for me, they're like the worst of both worlds. They take forever and they're not that useful. <laughs> right? <laughs> so the thing I say about them is there's a great Dylan William quotation on this where he says, uh, he once heard a student, uh, he once asked a student, a student would give him the feedback, you need to be more systematic in planning your scientific inquiries. And he says to the student, what does that mean to you? you, know, what, do you what does that feedback mean to you? And the student says, I don't know. If I'd known how to be more systematic, I would have been so the first time. And that's quite flippant. Right. <laughs> but when I read that for the first time, I cringed because I thought, how many hours of my life did I spend often on a Sunday evening writing out comments that were that vague? And not just that, but the same comment like 10, 15, 20 times. Right. And the point about those comments is they don't help students to improve. And Dylan William, he goes on, he says they're, they're, they're true, but useless. They're like telling an unsuccessful comedian to be funnier. Right. So what we need to be giving students is you know, action, an action step they can take that is going to help them get better. And the other thing we need to be doing, the other, another Dylan William line is, what we need to be focusing on is, it's not about improving the piece of work, it's about improving the student's thinking. So it's not about like, you know, um, go back and correct this work so it's a better piece of work and it's a higher grade. It's about what are you going to do so you think differently next time so when you next come to do a piece of work you're not going to make that mistake or the piece of work is going to be better so I think the best way of doing feedback from those big complex tasks is not to write comments at the bottom of it. And I always joke as well imagine if when you were doing a three-point term and you learned to drive the instructor said you know I'll give you a written comment in a week's time <laughs> like <laughs> it's insane Right. So it's incredibly time consuming. Everyone hates it and it doesn't help. So we, I think we just have to find a better way of doing it. So I really like whole class feedback for complex tasks, which is the idea the teacher will read all the essays. Yeah. And then the next lesson, they'll spend the lesson. They'll replan the next lesson based on the strengths and weaknesses they've seen. That's just far more efficient, far more effective. I also think that there should be a bigger role for multiple choice questions, short answer questions because they can be very efficient too. So I think we've got to have a serious think about, um, you know, time is the currency of education. We've got to have a serious think about, are we spending that time in the best ways? And what could we do to spend it better to get more more bang for the buck? Daisy, there was a comment by Phil Beadle on a classic TTR show with Adam Boxer and Phil Beadle where they, they nearly, well, had a war with each other over marking. But yeah. one of the comments that Phil Beadle was saying, who was who's very pro, was very pro marking, was what about the student or the parent who has no written comments? How does that make them feel? Or how does that, mm, yeah. you, you know, what's the impact of them not having any written, yeah. regular written interaction from the teacher? So I think, you know, the first thing I say to that is what students often don't realise is maybe they get that written interaction and they think that's incredibly personalised. <laughs> you know, it goes back to what, to what extent is it? To what extent sometimes is it, you know, the same kind of comment or a comment that's a bit generic or a comment that's taken from the mark scheme, mm. right? So that's one thing, like how personalised is it? And then, you know, go back to my question about the driving instructor. Does anyone think their driving instructor is like, you know, doesn't doesn't kind of you know personally understand them or uh, help them because they don't get a written comment from them mm -hmm. like i think you have to have there are other we're so in this straitjacket of written comments yeah like if you're seeing a kid from you know class for an hour a week 
even if you're only seeing for an hour a week, you know, then there have to be other ways that you can build that relationship and build that understanding that doesn't depend on an incredibly inefficient and ineffective method of um of feedback. So you know, when 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 kids are doing working class and you're circulating and you're looking over their shoulder um, and you're getting an idea of what they're writing, you know, if you're reading all their work and you're still, you know, you're reading it and you're jotting down notes and you're getting a feel for them. If you're setting the multiple choice questions and, you know, you, you, you're getting somewhere where you're automatically marking them and you're seeing the patterns and you're seeing the kids whose scores are standing out. Like, look, anyone who's been a teacher, surely you would know that the way you form a relationship with a kid is not just through a written comment. I can't believe that's the only way we can we can build, a, you know, build a kind of intellectual academic yeah. relationship. Khalil? Um, yeah, I can summarise this quite quite succinctly, I think, from my perspective. I think the time the time spent reading over work and then also writing things on, I don't know, 20, well, 20 to 30 different students' piece of work, that time spent is better spent reading the work and then not having to write anything and then instead spending your time planning about what yeah. you're going to do Absolutely. next lesson Absolutely. to make sure to make sure that whatever the overall misconceptions or whatever the gaps or whatever the whatever the the areas for development were or whatever the pitfalls were that you either adjust your teaching in the subsequent lessons to make sure that they learn they well they make progress and they whatever the pitfalls were they now avoid them or even better you go back to your curriculum you work out where your gaps were and how we even got to this point exactly. and then you know the next time you do this with another cohort you've got an improved um, delivery of content that yeah, time is better spent that. that time is better spent than spending time writing things and saying and then I used to spend hours of I you can probably guess you're not probably not surprised I was a bit of a maverick so my the previous schools wanted us to write I ended up writing the same comment on 20 20 kids books who all made the same mistake yeah. I could have spent, <laughs> and I was like I was like why exactly. am I, I was like, why am I doing this Exactly. I'm, what I'm going to do instead is, I'm, and I can fully justify this. I know they're going to say I've not abided by the policy, but I was, this was younger and earlier in my career. I was thinking I'm just going to spend my time thinking, right, they've all made the same mistake. Let me go back and look where where did I go wrong? Because clearly it's a me thing, not a them thing. Like this, this is this is my teaching that has led to this. If they're all making the same mistake, and I spent time going back and thinking, right, how am I going to re-explain, find new examples, remodel, whatever you want to call it? That time is better spent. That's teaching. Um, I've, but it's easier for maths. I feel like I'd, I've never taught a subject where they have to do um, long piece of well, where they don't, where they do more written work. And I know that's a bit more tricky because you have to actually read more to mm -hmm. find the mistakes. Maths is like, oh, you got the question wrong. I can see your error right there. Yeah. I feel like English and history is everything else is a bit more tricky, which I get why you need to actually read their answers more. But you still don't have to write anything. I don't feel like you need to. Like I don't. I I know when I was a kid and the teacher wrote, please do this. I don't, I don't think I even did it, to be honest. And then, <laughs> yeah. like, and I feel like some kids are like that as well. And it's just waste of, it's a waste of time. Time is better spent planning. And um, yeah, no, yeah. I think angry. you're both, I think you're both on the same page. Like, I mean, Daisy, is yeah, there definitely. anything you sort of want to, want to say just to sort no, of summarize? No, I totally agree with Khalil. Totally. Everything you said there is true. You know, and I, it baffles me that we're in this mindset of like the way you personalize is writing a comment. And if you want to, you know, go philosophical about it, you can be philosophical about how prose is, you know, short prose statements are not great ways of communicating. Um, and that's one of the reasons why rubrics are problematic, too. They don't give you kind of the precision that you need. Mm. 
So, you know, and I, to- I think everything Khalil said there is, is absolutely on the money. So, yeah. And just just use a verbal feedback stamp. That's all we need to do. <laughs> just, when it's, just make sure I agree with everything you said with one proviso. Make sure you use the damn stamp. We all love a verbal feedback stamp, don't we? Everyone's favourite. Love it. Daisy, I, do you know what I was going to do to finish off? You're going to hate this, but I, I don't have to do it. But I've lined up the University Challenge theme tune and well, some of the original questions. You know, fire away, Tom. It All right, get ready. Are you going to get done? Are you going to get done for copyright? Here, Probably. <laughs> now, in case you're wondering why the hell we're doing this, it's because Daisy won University Challenge. So here we go, Daisy. Are you ready with question number one? Go, 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 go. Well, they, they say start for ten, don't they? Anyway, yes. start, start for ten. We must leave exactly on time. From now on. Everything must function to perfection. Whose words were these spoken to a station master and quoted in 1939, part of the mythology that the trains always ran on time under fascist dictatorships? I'll read the quote again. We must leave exactly on time. From now on, everything must function. Mussolini. Correct. Correct. You got the start of a 10. Next question. Which village near Vienna is the site of the hunting lodge where the Habsburg Crown Prince Rudolf and his paranoir, uh, paramour, sorry, Mary Vestera. Oh, this is, this is, um, 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 uh, uh, mailing. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Daisy, you, t- you literally <laughs> took it off my tongue. I was, I was literally, oh my God. She hasn't man. lost it, mate. She hasn't lost it. This is mate, I, I, I couldn't tap the, the unmute button quick enough. I had that one. Right, next, what next, year next. was this, Daisy? What year were you on it? Uh, 2007, 2006-7. This is like like playing, like, kick around with a a 21-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, (laughs) who's come back for more. Right, here we go, question three. What name is that of an Aryan Christian Germanic people who maintained a North African kingdom in the 5th and 6th centuries and who, under their king Gaiseric, sacked Rome in 455? That's the Vandals. Correct. Do you know? Do, do you know? Do you know when they ask these questions on University Challenge? And the thing is, you just there's, a, there's something about how many commas are in that question. Just so I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. Like how many commas are in that question? That's about five, there was, right? There was only one in it. Stop that. No, there was only one comma in that. Wowzers! But I feel like when when Jeremy Paxman used to ask these questions, you know, when they just went on for a very long time, and then it would there was so many like caveats and provisos throughout the question. You get to the end. And most yes. people, yes. Daisy, you're, you're, I'm not going to put you in the most category here, but most people get to the end just being like, uh, what? Genuinely, I always forget the first four or five words. I, I'm like, yeah. what is going on? Anyway, Daisy, you're on a run here. That's ridiculous that you got all three of those right. What the hell? Right, two, two more and then we're closing the show down. All right. Question all right, four. Go on. In cytogenetics, what term describes the entire chromosomal complement of a cell which may be observed during mitotic metaphase? No, I, I don't know that. <laughs> Sorry. Bill Rouse! I don't know that. Um, are we allowed to ask the audience? <laughs> yes! <laughs> but they can't speak, so it's around. Ah. But it's karyotype. Okay, all right. Don't, never heard of it. Yeah. Last question. 
in the, this is a quote in the darkening twilight i saw a lone star hover gem-like above the bay this was the last diary entry of which explorer written on january the 5th 1922 at grit vicken in south georgia no, 1922 um shackleton correct right. do you know what tom i was about do you know what i I'm so glad that you said 1922 because I was a if I if I hadn't waited for 1922 I was about to come with I was about to come with the worst answer I'm not going to say what I was but right Daisy you have a, you have officially passed okay it's good to know the, the universe challenge two and this was way more important than the first one you ever did that you won with with the real Jeremy Paxman I just want to say thank you so much for coming on it has been an absolute blast. You are, I could listen to you all day. <laughs> Absolutely immense. Neil, um, thanks so much for coming on, mate. Really, really enjoyed your contributions yes. as well. Um, we, we are live actually over on ttradio.org right now for the Late Late Show. So if you want to listen to that, pop over there. Um, just click listen live on the TT Radio website. I'd like to thank every single person for tuning in. This will be available as a podcast. Um, very morning so if you follow teachers talk radio on spotify or apple Podcasts or any of those listen to it pass it on press the copy button press the paste on whatsapp i actually found out that 35 percent of listeners on spotify for teachers talk radio share a show via whatsapp i thought that was a very interesting statistic i never imagined that that number of people would share on a show via WhatsApp, but that's what people seem to be doing according to those statistics. So thank you ever so much. And we will be back again very soon. Well, we already are on the other channel, but we, we will uh, see you and speak to you again soon on TTR. Thanks everybody. And good night. Nice one. Cheers, Tom. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.